And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on December 18th, 2020. Aaron Greenberg is the Arboretum Manager for Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, where he oversees gardens, grounds, and a collection of over 4,000 trees. He is also the State Coordinator for the Pennsylvania Champion Tree Program, which documents the largest trees of each species in the state. Aaron is a board-certified master arborist with the ISA and tree risk assessment qualified. Welcome to the Trillion Trees podcast, Aaron. We're so delighted that you could join us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm an avid listener, so I'm excited to be, uh, to be here talking with you guys today. Well, we were excited that you, um, you agreed to come on to today's show. And one of the things that Hal and I were talking about was uh, wondering how you even got started working at the cemetery. Sure. Um, I can give you guys a little bit of background about myself. I, uh, I got into trees not that long ago. I'm, I'm sort of early in my career, six or seven years. But I did a, an internship at the Morris Arboretum, an arborist internship, where um, I sort of developed my love for and my love for trees and tree care and uh, became a certified arborist through that internship. Um, and after that, I worked for a while, production tree care. I, and, um, and then I worked, I went down to Delaware and I was working at Mount Cuba Center in their natural lands um, for about a year, trying to think about tree care on more of a landscape forestry side of things. But you know, I, I realized I wanted to make the move back to the public garden world and back to arbor culture and the opportunity to to be an arborist at West Laurel Hill, where, where I visited several times before, presented itself, and I, I jumped on it. And uh, I could give you a little bit of background about, about the cemeteries, too, if that would be good. That would be great. Um, sure. So uh, Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries are two different cemeteries. Laurel Hill is on the east side of the Schuylkill River. That's the cemetery you see if you're driving on Kelly Drive and you look up and uh, see the old obelisks and, and mausoleum, stuff like that. That's, that's Laurel Hill Cemetery. And that was founded in 1836. It was the uh, second cemetery in the country in what's known as the rural cemetery movement. So even though now it's in a very urban area, at the time that was like way outside the city and in farmland. And it was founded um, by John J. Smith and a few other uh, men at the time who wanted to create a burial ground that would be something uh, other than the offerings of the day, which were essentially crowded churchyards. Um, there, was, there was some concern about uh, things like miasmas, and they didn't really have their germ theory figured out back then. 
but they, what they wanted was a big expansive landscape where people could be buried, but not only that, where people could come recreate, have picnics, enjoy the scenery and, and experience horticulture. That became very popular and, you know, was, was nearly full within 30 years. It also sort of got hemmed in on either side by Fairmount Park and the railroad. So they then expanded across the river and founded West Laurel Hill in, in what's now Balakinwood on Belmont Avenue. And that was founded in 1869. So both cemeteries are now, um, you know, we think of them as sister cemeteries. They're, they're separate sites, but they're connected. As an arboretum, we're a single arboretum that contains a living collection of trees and shrubs that expands both sites. We have been an accredited, accredited arboretum through ArbNet for about five years as a combined arboretum, but really it was the vision of the founders for both sites to be, to be arboretum and places where people could come and, and, and it, you know, experience specimen trees and, and shrubs and the like. So is it one corporate structure that oversees both cemeteries? Um, it's a little bit complicated. I was talking to Eva about this earlier. It's a little bit com- complicated. It's a collection of, there's uh, nonprofits that oversee the cemetery operations. There's another nonprofit, regular nonprofit, 501c3 Friends Group, uh, which I'd encourage everybody to check out and become members. And there's also a for-profit funeral home and uh, pet cemetery business. So it's, the governance is a little complicated, but essentially, you know, the boards are the same and, and, and the president's the same, the arboretum is the same, and we, we really, we really uh, work together on almost everything. Are you the first uh, full-time arborist for West Laurel Hill? So I would say I'm the first full-time arborist. Yeah, there's, there've been a, a number of other arborists throughout the years, but often they would be part of the operations crew. So they would be doing tree care one day and then they would get pulled off to help dig a grave or uh, do some construction work or something like that at other times. So when they, they hired me, they really wanted somebody to be full-time focused arboriculture, not only arboriculture, but everything having to do with the arboretum. So I oversee all the plantings around the gravesides, all the shrubs, all the garden areas, along with our uh, full-time horticulturist, Greg Tepper, the turf contract, all of that. So it's, it's definitely a, a more than a full-time job. So you're a head arborist and horticulturalist slash main overseer. <laughs> sure. My official title is Arboretum Manager. Okay. So Arboretum oh, wow. Manager. That's fabulous. Yeah. That's, That's fabulous. That's like 10 different hats right there, Aaron. It is, yeah. And luckily we were, last year, um, or almost two years ago now, we were able to hire a full-time horticulturist because my background being in trees, um, you know, I really wanted to have a professional horticulturist who could help us really develop some of our, you know, more intensive garden areas. I'll tell you, from an arborist standpoint, as someone that, has seen a number of arboretums and kind of considers how different ones are laid out. I think what you have going there at West Laurel Hill is in terms of individual species profiled. It's almost like walking through a a Michael Durr book. You know what I mean? Because the trees stand alone. Yes, they're competing with the markers and the mausoleums, which is interesting unto itself. But you 
there's one bend in the road after another where you see a white oak or a European beech just profiled, you know, up on a hill or down in a valley. And it's very special that way because you're not distracted by the understory, you know, the shrubs and the perennial beds, because it, it really is tree centric over there. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, our, we have between the two cemeteries, there's, you know, over 4,000 specimen trees, um, about three quarters of which are at West Laurel Hill. So, um, and, and the, the variety, like you say, is, is, is enormous. And one of the first things I did when I started with the company was to make sure we had a full um, mapped inventory of all of our specimen trees. And that took me, you know, well over a year to walk, you know, the entire cemetery, both cemeteries with the help of an intern and really make sure each, t- each tree was mapped, tagged with a number tag. And then each tree has, you know, taxonomic data, size data, and uh, we're able to also add condition data and do risk assessment with our inventory system. So that was really the first step to say, wow, this is an amazing collection. You know, we got to really figure out what we have here so that we can then start, you know, creating management goals and planting goals. I I think that one of the things that I I feel is so um, important about uh, the cemetery from a historic standpoint is that uh, cemeteries part of the 1800s were used as the, uh, the epicenter for presenting new plant species that arrived here in this country. And people were able to see them in all their glory, as Hal was saying, whether it was a large shrub or small shrub or a tree, maybe not quite in its full glory yet, but they were able to have their, their picnic on the grave and then walk around and see these amazing plants that were new to our society here in our country. And I think that that in itself is a legacy that Laurel Hill, the only place that holds a candle to it is St. Auburn's up in, in Boston, which was the first cemetery, first rural, formal rural cemetery in the country. The first place to have time tickets in, in our country was Laurel Hill. You had to have a time ticket to get in because it was that popular on a Sunday afternoon. Sure. And, and, you know, the, the founding of these cemeteries in the first decades of them were, you know, coincident with some of the great plants people of, of the Philadelphia area. And, you know, John Smith, our founder, certainly got plant material from Bartram and from Hamilton over at the Woodlands and some of the interesting stuff that they were bringing in. There's not great records of it, but there's no doubt in my mind that some of that was ending up at, at Laurel Hill and, and eventually at West Laurel Hill. Well, and I feel blessed that I have met you over at the Woodlands, speaking of cemeteries. That's That's where Aaron and I first met, and we're talking about trees, (laughs) looking at trees on the tree tour, which I I think is is another fascinating thing, that you can actually have tree tours at a cemetery and make the public aware of what kind of value and different species that we have here in the city of Philadelphia. Totally. And we're, and my plan for next year is to even increase our tree tours. I'm trying to do a tree tour at each cemetery for each season. So we're going to do a winter uh, bark and buds tour in January and February. We're going to do spring bloom tours, shade tree tours, and then fall foliage tours. So 
I'm excited about that. I love giving tree tours. I can I can talk about trees for for hours. And if you're coming on a tree tour, you're usually pretty enthusiastic. And that's why we invited you. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's great. Because Hal and I can talk about trees all day long. Oh, it's great. Good. So we're going to be here for what? Two hours? Three hours talking about trees? Uh, just about just about forty minutes. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's good. With the uh, inventory. Can, just to jump back, can you talk a little bit more about your process? Uh, was there software or technology that you had to invest in? And the question I like to challenge Arborists with is, how are you using that inventory? Because uh, I've seen it happen a half a dozen times where you put your work into it. And this is back in the olden days of printing out your findings on spreadsheets and such. And I know it's a whole different world, but it seems like inventories would get completed and then go in the big three ring binder and and sit up on a shelf. How are you keeping that a living document? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, So when we first did our inventory of all the trees and up until pretty much right now, we've been using a program that's cemetery specific. It's called Web Cemeteries, and they use it to map out all the graves and grave sites. And they also have a, a tree and arboretum module, which I actually helped them uh, sort of develop. So we were able to use that to uh, have all the data on a web-based platform that I had access to. And so now, if I if I want to search for any tree, I can search by species. I can uh, create work orders for each individual tree. If they need, uh, you know, for instance, you know, I treat about 65 ash trees for emerald ash borer. When I do that, they, they each have a work order. And uh, when it's completed, I can mark that it was completed and have a really good record of, of work done for, for those trees. So that's one way it's, it's used. Really, the possibilities for how we can use our inventory are so big that we've actually recently started the transition to a new program which is uh, Davies Tree Keeper program. I don't know if either of you are familiar with that. It's used a lot for municipalities and also for some arboreta and cemeteries. With that, we're going to be able to do much more. We've had all of our cemetery maps digitized. We're going to, we can do sort of big batch ordering of work orders, and we'll be able to push those live to some of our staff on the ground who will be able to use tablets or their phones to receive work orders mark when they're done, take photos. Yeah, so essentially we'll we'll use it to keep data on all of our tree maintenance activities. Um, Another great thing that we're gonna be able to do with TreeKeeper is it automatically feeds through iTreeEco so we can see in real time the uh, ecological impact that our tree canopy has. We can see carbon sequestration, stormwater runoff mitigated, and all the other various ecological benefits that our canopy has, which is huge. And the other big thing is that it's going to have a public-facing web app, so folks will have a really easy, uh, nice way to experience our tree collection you know, from their own devices, whether they're at home or on-site. They're on-site, they can actually, we'll actually be able to pull up a map, it'll geolocate them, show them which tree specimens are around them, if they want to search for certain species and where those are, they'll be able to do that. And also each tree has its own number tag. So if you walk up to a tree and you say, hey, I wonder what, what tree 2317 is, you can just punch that in and it'll give you all the information you need. I was going to ask you about the tree cover because how important canopy is within uh, the context of 
the city, the city landscape and what it does for stormwater runoff and carbon sequestration and, and the whole lot, but also cooling, uh, cooling in the, in the summertime too. I'm glad to hear that you're using that, those tools to um, make people aware of how important trees are and, and the canopy cover. Absolutely. And that was another one of the things I did within the first year of starting at Laurel Hill, West Laurel Hill, was we worked with Jason Lubar and the folks at the Morris um, uh, Urban Forestry Consultants to do a canopy uh, analysis of both cemeteries. So we were able to actually get good, really accurate um, canopy cover numbers using LIDAR and that sort of thing and found what our canopy covers are for each cemetery, um, which is about 41% at West Laurel Hill and only about 23% at Laurel Hill. And then from that, we're able to set, you know, canopy cover goals. So, you know, we've been planting pretty aggressively at both cemeteries in order to, you know, think about our future canopy and increase the canopy. And also obviously to increase, you know, diversity and, and increase biodiversity. How do you make those decisions? What kind of trees what? Gonna, how how you're gonna what kind of trees you're gonna be planting? And I know that you don't have all natives, and I I was really happy to see that you you had was it was it you that had Davidia? I thought you had yeah. on your site, yeah. Yeah, and that's actually that was one of the legacies of one of our previous arborists, Rob Grassi. He uh, planted that row of Davidia which he actually bought from one of your previous guests, Andy Shank, over at Sam Brown's nursery. Small world. Um, but they just started blooming um, really in full form this year. So they were, they were unbelievable. But yeah, in terms of how we make our decisions about what to plant, um, you know, we have a collections policy and we have planting goals, which I can summarize for you. First and foremost, we're trying to increase canopy cover and increase diversity. So we, we know that by increasing our, our diversity at each, at each plant layer, we will, will have a corresponding increase in, in wildlife diversity. And that's a, major, that's a major goal, along with genetic diversity. But beyond that, you know, it's, as a cemetery, it's imp very important to me to plant trees that tell a story. So our landscape is really full of stories. I mean, from the monuments that have inscriptions of names of historical people from the region from the past, you know, several hundred years uh, to our living collection. So, and, and we, we're able to tell stories with the trees we plant, stories about the past and about the future. So what I mean by that is, for instance, we have a, a, a planting list from a, a guide to Laurel Hill from 1847 that has a list of trees that were some of the original trees that were planted at Laurel Hill. Now, some of those are not things that we would ever plant anymore because they're known to be invasive or they're, you know, thuggish and aggressive. But whenever we're able to plant something from that list, that tells a great story. It's a connection to our founders. It's a connection to our horticultural legacy. Another example is the Penn Treaty Elm. We were able to get a couple scions from the Penn Treaty Elm, um, which uh, I don't if you, if you, everybody knows the story of the Penn Treaty Elm, you know. You can give an overview though for our West Coast listeners. Yeah, you can give an overview. I, I did a presentation on it at the Philadelphia Flower Show on its 200th anniversary. Oh, great. I'll just briefly tell the story. Um, so the Penn Treaty Elm was an, a, a huge American elm tree on the Delaware River. 
um, under which the story goes, William Penn signed the Treaty of Peace with the Lenape Indians um, in 1682 when he came and sort of founded his, his little chunk of land here in Pennsylvania. That original tree still lived for another 100 plus years. And in 1810, I believe it was, blew over in a storm. But luckily, um, who, the landowner at the time was able to take some cuttings from it grow them on and plant them in various sort of significant Philadelphia locations in the early 19th century. One of those scions is still growing at an University of Pennsylvania campus. That tree recently in the past 10 years had cuttings taken from it um, by the folks at Morris Arboretum who grew those on. And now we have a couple of those. So, uh, um, this what is, size are they, Aaron? So, uh, you know, they're not bigger than a half an inch in caliper, but uh, since I've planted them, they've already grown three or four feet, <laughs> um, as American elms are wont to do. Yeah. And, you know, is, is American elm a tree that I would be regularly planting straight species? I mean, no. I, I, I have to know that I'm going to be, you know, once these trees reach a certain size, I'm going to have to treat them for Dutch elm disease. But this tree has such a good story and such a historical significance to our state and our city that to me, it's worth planting to be able to tell that story and have that, the legacy of that tree live on. When I did the presentation down at the Philadelphia Flower Show in 2010, um, Haverford actually houses the genetic line of the grandchildren of the tree that was at Penn Treaty Park. And they give uh, specimens out to places around the country. So uh, I know Carol Wagner is the keeper of those trees. And uh, one of the things that we have a great legacy here in Philadelphia is that the Quakers were extremely adamant about maintaining trees and their lineage. And University of Pennsylvania and Haverford are two of the uni universities or colleges that have uh, the, the lineage that continues. And most people don't know that, but if you're looking for genetic lineage, uh, you'll probably find it on a Quaker property. Mm, yeah. Um, I just wanted to also, before I stop talking about uh, tree planting, mention that we're not only thinking about the past when we're, and the stories of the past when we're planting trees. Obviously, um, sustainability and climate resilience are huge. And for the most part, when I'm planting trees, I'm thinking about the stories we're telling about the future, right? So we all know, I mean, you guys have talked about it on your podcast with several guests. We all know climate change is, is real, it's happening. And uh, it's, our, our zones are changing and what we're able to to plant is, is changing. So at West Laurel Hill, we've got a lot of really historic, iconic sugar maples. And I have to think about whether that's a tree that we can still in good conscience plant know, knowing that our climate is warming. You know, maybe not. Or maybe there are populations of sugar maple that are more Southern and more hardy that can be collected from. Um, I, I know there's some cultivars that are supposed to be more heat tolerant, like Green Mountain and some others. And maybe we can experiment with planting some of those. Yeah, there's and, definitely an upside to that, Aaron. Um, as sad as it is to see some of these species fade out because of the heat and the 
uh, how the climate crisis is changing our agricultural zone, we are going to get to see some cool new trees coming up this way. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I've talked a bunch about some of the trees that Morris has graciously donated to us. Another one is the southern live oak, which they collected in northern Virginia from the northernmost southern live oak population. You know, we've planted out a couple of those, and I'm super excited to be part of that trial because, you know, if we're planting for a climate future where southern live oaks are going to be hardy in our climate, then we want to start planting them. I mean, talk about a big, iconic tree. Absolutely. Also, the southern uh, sugar maple or the Acer barbatum, which is another one that most people don't even know about, um, mm. is, is something that, you know, might replace some of the sugar maples that you're working with right now. Or, like you said, you might find one that's more resilient or even a location on site that may be cooler because of a downdraft that they can survive better. Um, especially along the river there where um, you get cool nights and you get cool breezes down in the heat of the summer and see how, how they do. Uh, there's just so much that can be done. And, and, I, and I think the best part about you being at the cemetery is that there is a, a lineage that continues and you're documenting where when there's sporadic people coming in to maintain trees, you don't have that wonderful provenance of people with plants. And I think that that is so critical in any location, whether it's a cemetery or whether it's a city, the provenance of the person and the plant together is important from a historical standpoint, like you were mentioning with the founder of the cemetery. Absolutely, yeah. And we have so little historic information about many of our biggest, most iconic trees. You know, I just, I wish there had been better records kept for the last 150 years. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, 150 years from now, someone is going to be happy that we kept such good records about <laughs> what we're planting and where it all came from. Do you happen to have any uh, photographic records of tree crews on site, like, in the early 1900s. Those pictures always blow me away. So there are some. There's actually an interesting little book from, uh, I believe it's 1911, some, sometime around then, that it's a, it's a guide for uh, the tree care industry. And all of the photos in it were taken at West Laurel Hill. And it shows you really important things like how to fill tree cavities with cement and uh, all those really great yeah. Great practices that we don't uh, obviously don't do anymore. I hope my sarcasm is coming through in the podcast. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> you know, it's still it's still cool to see what people used to do. I have one great tree at West Laurel Hill. It's a silver maple, and if you look um, way up in the canopy, you can see uh, you know cables that we've installed to to keep some of the branches stable. If you look a little lower in the canopy, you can see a piece of chain link that is almost entirely grown over that was like an old proxy for a cable that is, you know, not anything we would use anymore, but it's like, you know, this linked chain that's oh, wow. 80 years old from yeah. when they, when they cabled the tree, when it was much yeah. smaller. It's, it's cool to see the, you know, even though is it the best for the tree? Probably not, but it's still cool to see a history, the history of tree care in that way. And that's well, you've got an old cool. silver maple still standing. So it must have worked to some level. Right, exactly. That's a good point. 
Now, now, when you heart, when you take a tree down, do you have any plan for the wood? Um, like, you know, our dear friends at the Urban Wood Network who are from Wisconsin who harvest the old trees and, and they utilize them for timber. Is there anything that you're doing with that or maybe even a local craftsman coming in making things for the cemetery? Sure. Um, we, we are just starting in the past couple of years to get into that. So uh, we, we do have some wood that is waiting and curing and is, is ready to be milled and stickered up pretty soon. We have a, a gentleman on our staff who's our facilities manager who actually will make some urns, especially for the pet business, out of some reclaimed um, wood, which I think is really really cool. Um, we even have a, a contractor who's a, a coffin maker who's used some of the wood from on site to make coffins. But we're just sort of starting to get into that. I mean, it's really, you know, all of our big removals and big tree work are done by, you know, outside contractors. And we, we generally get the wood hauled away. So we're just starting to reclaim some of that, get it milled so we can use it for projects. I mean, one thing we, we do do is not with the large wood, but we now have uh, and just in the past year have brought our rec- what we call a reclamation area on site for reclaiming organic material. So all of our brush is, uh, we're stockpiling and getting it ground into mulch. Uh, once a year on site, we're, we're uh, making some of our own compost uh, with all the weeds and, and, and some of that brown material as well. We collect, at least at West Laurel Hill, uh, 50% or so of the leaves that fall um, get picked up and stockpiled and we're making leaf mulch and things of that nature from that. So we are trying to come up with ways to really use, reuse a lot of our material, not to mention all the soil that's displaced from all the, all the burials is being sifted and mixed with compost to create more nutrient rich topsoil type products, deal with erosion issues. And, you know, we're really trying to think more about adaptive reuse. Well, that's exciting. Aaron, do you still get to do any climbing? Um, unfortunately, I don't get to do any climbing at, at work. Uh, it's just not really in our scope of things. So I, I contract out all the climbing. Okay. Um, I, I still do a lot of the tree work, anything I can do from the ground with a pole tool or a ladder. I like to do uh, some of my favorite days of work where I can just prune all day especially getting to work on some of these cool trees, like the big weeping beaches and, and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And where, where really it's part art and part science. I, that Absolutely. And part meditation. I mean, it's so <laughs> yeah. contemplative. I saw an amazing, well, a thought provoking presentation, Northeastern Organic Farmers Association had a, their Zoom event earlier in the week. And uh, the last presentation of the day was on, um, electrifying equipment as far as the, uh, you know, blowers and chainsaws. And there was actually a little bit of talk about how to, uh, that a, they're going to be rolling out a chipper. that's actually going to be an attachment, but just wondering if you guys had considered going in that direction with, uh, your chainsaws and blowers, the, the blowers, man, we got to phase those things out. They, they're bad. They're bad karma. Yeah. So, um, we, not with the chainsaws and blowers yet, but we actually, we have a section of West Laurel Hill called Nature Sanctuary, which is our green burial area, which is managed as a native plant meadow. And it's actually a successional woodland. So as it 
as it fills with burials, we're, we're coming behind and planting native trees and shrubs, and we're doing like a managed ecological succession there. And one of the management criteria for that area to, to keep it in its green burial, and it's also received the site's gold landscape recognition. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, first, uh, I believe the first cemetery to receive the gold. So we're, we're, we were pretty excited about that. Wow, that's very exciting. But one of the criteria for that area is that you can't use any gas-powered equipment at all in that section. Ah. So um, not only do they have to dig all the graves by hand with shovels the old-fashioned way, but um, all the management we do has to be, if we're using any equipment, it has to be battery-powered. So uh, we actually have invested in a battery-powered mower, which works super well. We have a battery-powered multi-tool, which is like you can put a string trimmer on it or a hedge trimmer or steel makes it. It's an awesome tool. And we have this really great big battery-powered auger that has uh, up to an 8-inch bit on it. And we use that for, for planting plugs and planting small shrubs. And honestly, we've started to use the auger and the mower and the trimmers elsewhere on the property because they're awesome. They, they, they're working just as well, honestly, as the gas-powered stuff, and it's so much quieter, and, and we can be, you know, a little bit more sustainable. So, you know, we're, we're, get, we're getting there. Do we have, have I experimented with the battery-powered chainsaw yet? I guess I have not, but... I'm open to my, my colleague um, uh, Louise Clark over at Morris Arboretum in, on the on the um, Bloomfield farm side. She's used uh, battery powered. She she loves them. She absolutely loves them. Chainsaws too. Uh, you know, depending on what you're doing. Sure. It, she swears by them, and pretty much they're moving towards all battery operated equipment because of the smell, the noise. Even the blowers that we hate so much should actually be vacuum cleaners. They should just be vacuuming rather than spreading all that. And then you could use that for making compost or something like that that you pick up. And they're, they're coming up with more and more durable batteries for them um, in the right. trade, which I think is great. They've had them for years over in England. When I lived there, everything was battery operated. Um, that's going back to, th to 2000, 2001. You know, you saw all the, all the mowers were battery operated. Right, just a matter of catching up, I think. And and the will. And the will. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're kind of coming down to the the uh, time here. Um, Hal, do you have any questions you want to ask, Aaron? Oh, the questions are dangerously close to splitting in two, but I'm going <laughs> to jump right into it. First of all, tell us a genus at either of the laurels that a serious tree nerd might want to know about that something that is a little bit off the grid. Is there anything there that you would want to tell us about that would send us scrambling over there to find it? Sure. There's, I'll tell you about a really unusual tree at each cemetery. Oh, so, oh man. Um, and they're, they're both state champion trees, but they're also both the only trees of, this, of these particular varieties that are on the list. So um, at West Laurel Hill, we have a really old weeping Japanese scholar tree. That's a, you know, Stephanolobium japonicum, uh, the weeping variety. And it's, it's old and it's got these really cool contortions. It's in the oldest section of the cemetery. I think it's, you know, it could be mid 19th century that that thing was planted and it's really cool. 
And then at Laurel Hill, uh, one of our interesting specimens, which we're hoping to figure out a way to propagate, is we have a cut leaf linden. So that's uh, Tilia platyphyllos laciniata. It's a cut leaf linden. And that's another tree that was sort of available in the trade late 19th century, early 20th century, and just disappeared. And uh, I think a lot of people used to have them in their collections and they've been lost. And it's just a, it's a tree that if you didn't know what you were looking for, you would walk by it. Um, mm. And, but if you, somebody pointed it out to you and you're a real, a real tree nerd, like, like us, it's really cool. You need to, you need to get proven winners, get that into the proven winners line of new trees. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be great. I mean, I think bringing back some of these cool old uh, historic varieties is, is a, Great idea for some nursery who's who's willing to do it. Yeah, and knock um, on wood, hopefully Tilia is going to hang around in our uh, zone seven. And and oh yeah, yeah, it seems like it's holding its own pretty well. I think so. At least Tilia americana, um, you know, our native our native linden is is such a tough tree. And we actually we have we have the champion Tilia americana at Laurel Hill. Oh really? As well, yeah. I might have to get up and walk away from my computer for the afternoon. <laughs> Eva, I didn't tell you that uh, I'm walking distance to uh, West Laurel Hill. In fact, my wife is there probably three or four times a week for a midday walk. Oh, great. Yeah, because we're right across the Schuylkill uh, on the old sure. Connolly Container Bridge. It's, oh, not, nice. it's amazing that, you know, we can have – you didn't give us – you didn't tell us anything about the uh, – uh, champion tree program i'm sorry we didn't get to that oh yeah um, but our listeners we're gonna have to have you back again aaron to talk about I, that i guess so yeah um <laughs> i just i'll just plug pabigtrees.com you can go and explore the pennsylvania champion tree program oh yes um yourself which i'm the i'm the state coordinator for which means i you know managing the website and keeping track of the list of of, of champion trees and really the biggest trees of it, of each species uh, within Pennsylvania are are tracked and on that website. And you can, if you have a big tree you know about and you want to submit it, um, you can do do so right through the website. We're we're actually just about to roll out a new, brand new version of the website in the next couple of weeks. So fantastic! Well, that's great. Well, it was really wonderful having you on our show. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, I know our listeners are going to love this this episode. Guys, this was so much fun, and um, I'd love to come back sometime and talk to you guys again. We'd love to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, guys. Thank you.